Well, good morning. Um, so, I'm gonna, gonna not sing but say Psalm 127. So, if I sang it at you, that wouldn't be very pleasant for anyone. Um, so, Psalm 127. It's a very simple psalm, but it's a song of a sense of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor build in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb are reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is a man who fills his quiver with them. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Lord, just um, pray that you'd bless this word to us, Lord, and pray that, um, that the word is mixed with faith in your name. Amen. Um, so I started looking at this psalm back in July whenever we were dealing with the material from the prayer night with Emmanuel, and we had been thinking about the smoothing and the carving process, and the verses from the end of this psalm jumped out at me one night. Um, whenever we were thinking about patient endurance, I started to think about arrows being smoothed out. And I sort of saw a picture of the individuals of the church being prepared to be like arrows going in a man's quiver who's going to war, meeting the enemy at the gate. And, um, you know, just that picture of God delighting to hold us up in the world when we stand against the darkness at the edge of town. And the sense that we intimidate every evil force when we're formed by God and stand in him and are within his quiver. Um, and enemies coming and catching the sight of that and saying, maybe not today, actually. Maybe I'll go home. Um, so it caught my, caught my eye, and I felt I needed to explore it a bit deeper. Um, now, it's, it's kind of an unusual psalm. It's very short. It's got a couple of ideas in it which don't necessarily seem to flow one from another. They seem to almost... It's almost like a, a massive weight in it, where it's, it's hard to really grapple with. It's hard to get a, a means of entry into it to really see what it's about. Um, and it's very like the Proverbs in a way of sort of being like, well, eat your greens, you know, really, you know, this is good stuff. But also, you know, you might find it difficult at first just to read it and break it down for yourself. Um, so I find I've, I've had to take a few backward steps. I've had to sort of zoom out and really see what it's all about. Um, so it's listed as a song of ascent. Uh, that's one of the 15 Psalms, 120 to 134, which um, are shorter Psalms that David wrote um, for, the, for the three festivals um, that occurred every year on, that Moses had put in place. So you had Passover, you had Weeks, you had tabernacles, and these would have been sang on the way up to the temple and on the way up the steps in the temple as well. Most translations will give the authorship to Solomon, um, and because it says of Solomon at the top, and that would seem to make sense because it's a collection of proverbs, essentially. 
um, and it would easily fit into the book of Proverbs. You could just break it up and put it in there. No one would really notice, I don't think. Um, and we know that Solomon's a good songwriter. He's got 1,005 songs. Uh, Bob Dylan's on 360. Um, the Boss is written on 360. Bob Dylan's 600. Dolly Parton's 3,000. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so there's, you know, there's a conversation to be had there. Uh, anyway, um, and the, the three vanities right at the start of this as well, they, they sound very much like the book of Ecclesiastes. So you could imagine that just being put into the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't think anyone would, would actually notice. But having said all that, and you know, the, the other thing about it is that it's about building for the man who built a temple, and it's about rest for the man who sort of ushered in an era of rest in Israel. Um, it, it does seem to sort of resonate with Solomon, so you could be forgiven for thinking that it's Solomon's writing. Uh, but I think it belongs to David. And I think quite a few translations agree with that. Um, so you consider Psalm 72, which is the only other psalm that Solomon has attributed to him. It actually ends the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So it's more than likely that that's David's psalm. And you take them both together, although there's a lot of overlap with Solomon's, it seems more like a more like a prototype almost for Solomon's own psalms and how he's to conduct his reign. And you look at Psalm 72 and it's all blessings over, over Solomon's reign that's to come. Um, so I kind of started to see this almost as a source code to quote a film title, which I've never seen, um, for all of Solomon's work. Um, and I think David here is actually looking back over his life and thinking about the things that made a difference for him and distilling it down to just five verses, which I think is quite scary. You know, and um, we talk about the already but not yet. And David, there's a wee bit of that here for him where he's looking forward into Solomon's reign. But, um, you know, he's, he's just rejoicing in what's come before, but he's looking forward. Um, so we know about the structure it's uh, basically three small proverbs at the start and then one extended proverb to finish. Uh, it's three proverbs about building, then security, and then work, and uh, the now, you know. And then he deals with family and the future and in the concluding proverb. And so the first proverb, except the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. It's a simple proverb that says, um, if you're building something with just man's help, then beware, it's not going to last. It's used of households so much, um, it'll be no stranger to people that have done pre-marriage counselling. It's trotted out with a lot of, a lot of weddings. and um, It seems to have extended meaning here if, it's, if we're giving it to Solomon from David, um, ahead of building the temple. Um, David's seen a few things in his lifetime. He's seen the house of Boaz and the house of Jesse and then the house of Saul and then Absalom's reign. Uh, and it's, um, I think it's a reflection on that. He's what's made the difference there. Um, 
early in the rain, whenever whenever David comes into the into the you know the the, the um, kingdom, he has a palace more or less given to him by just gets built by Hiram of Tyre. Basically, comes alongside and gives him workmen and cedar trees, and that's one of the signs early on to David that his kingdom's going to be established by God. The fact, the fact that this just this just works out. This just happens for him. And, um, and since then, he's seen his own household nearly washed off the face of the earth. He's, there's been adultery and murder and trials afterwards, so he's had to deal with infant death, and he's had to deal with war with Absalom. He's had to deal with his best friend's betrayal, and then has to deal with the humiliation of being taken off the battlefield, so he's not even a military leader at this stage. He's, he's in his old age and frailty and his own sickness and being confined to bed. But even after that, David is still the man after God's own heart. He's chosen for a reason. And after all these years, he can look back and say the only thing that matters for him was the promise given to him from Nathan when he comes into his kingdom and he has his, his own house of cedar and he says, you know, let me build God's temple. Um, the Lord comes back to him and says, well, you, you know, I'm giving you a promise of peace from your enemies and from the nation. But he flips David's wish around and says, um, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And I think that's what he wants to pass on to Solomon here. He wants to say, unless the Lord builds, it's in vain. And he commissions Solomon to build a temple. And Solomon, for his part, does well. Takes the, takes the provision that David makes. He builds a temple in seven years, and at the end of it, the Lord inhabits it. His glory fills it. And he also reproduces this message in his Proverbs several times over. It says, wisdom's built her house, it's seven pillars, when the storm swept by, the righteous stand firm. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the righteous will flourish. By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it's established. So Solomon, you have to think, kind of internalized this and reverberates through his writings. So the second proverb, again, verse 1, uh, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So David looks back over what's his security when he's been on both sides of the city walls in, in battle. Uh, so he's been a man laying siege to many's, many cities to take them for Israel. And he also knows what it is to have an army of Saul or Absalom after him. Um, so he says in Psalm 60, he'll bring me into the strong city. Who will lead me into Edom? And he's seen the city of Jerusalem being defended by the Jebusites and he's you know they've made their boast in the walls but it's not about walls for David it's um he's put his trust in the Lord and he knows not to trust in his own strength and in Psalm 31 he says blessed be the Lord for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city so he knows that regardless of the walls it's uh, it's the Lord that that is um, watching over him and over and over in the Psalms, you'll hear him refer to the Lord as my refuge and my fortress, my rock, my strong tower. And um, it seems like this verse, this half verse, is distilling down the entirety of, 
Psalm 46 for me. Now, David didn't write that one, but it's, but it's um, the way it says, uh, God is in the midst of the city, shall not be moved. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Um, and Solomon passes on again in his, in his uh, Proverbs. He gets a message and we hear, When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress. And for their children, it will be a refuge. Um, so, third proverb in verse 2. It's uh, about our daily lives and our work. And it's just intensely really really good advice so it says it's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil for he gives to his beloved sleep so if you were to summarize it it would say don't worry get your sleep trust in god but he's actually speaking directly to solomon in this um You'll see that the end word of beloved there means Jedediah, which is Solomon's other name. Um, so he, he, he wants to hand off something personal to, to Solomon here. And uh, if this was a message from an old man looking back on his life and again wondering what made the difference, I wouldn't be that surprised. And the anxiety that David's describing here, it's any number of situations that David's been in, obviously. There's been so many times when he's been brought to trial. Um, David always encouraged himself in the Lord, but I, I feel this is most likely from when he spent nights trying to work out what to do about Absalom and his other children that had gone astray when he was having to run the kingdom remotely in the middle of a hostile takeover. So the utter chaos in that and the, just the pandemonium and being in a kingdom for 20 years and then kicked out. Um, so it says in Psalm 3, when he was running from Absalom, it says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I'll not be afraid of many thousands of people. So David tasks, tasks, tasks Solomon with hard work, with the kingdom, the, the temple, the people, his enemies. He knows how a kingdom can go wrong. And he says, don't be afraid. And Solomon, soon after he's anointed and takes, takes ownership of the kingdom, he, um, he sacrifices before the Lord. And uh, it's interesting that it, he, gives, he gives to his beloved sleep because then whenever Solomon's sleeping, um, the Lord comes to him with, you know, make whatever request you wish of me and he requests wisdom so he doesn't ask for an easy time he asks for an understanding mind and the wisdom to be able to handle things rattling through these pretty well so the fourth proverb the extended one concludes everything the from three to five so it says behold children are a, are a heritage from the lord the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is a man who fills his quiver with them. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. And again, David reviewing history in his own life, he wants to pass on to Solomon a bit of help and for his kingship, and he has advice. Get children for your old age and act as your succession. 
And I want to point to a few words that David uses. So, inheritance or heritage, that's uh, nahala. And that's the same word that's used when, when we're discussing in the Old Testament, the raising up of the name of the dead by marriage for sons. So, you hear Boaz saying in Ruth 4.10, 4, um, Ruth the Midianite, the widow of Malon, I've bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, so that the name of the dead may not be cut off from amongst his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Your witnesses this day. So with the gate. And then, so he's looking forward to, to Solomon to raise a new generation. And we think about the warrior at the gate. The gate's the, new, the Old Testament place of confrontation with the world. You think about um, the book of Genesis and you see Shechem, you see Sodom, you see Job's seat in the book of Job where he has his seat in the, in the marketplace. You see Abraham going to purchase Sarah's grave. You see Boaz, as we've just seen. And you see the promise in Abraham that his children would literally possess the gate of their enemies. You, and you, you go a bit further in time and you, you see Samson literally taking the gates from the Philistines and taking them up a hill. And uh, my advice is if you're doing that, then you lift with your legs, okay? Lift with your legs, not with your back, and probably go one at a time, okay? Otherwise, yeah, otherwise go ahead, you know? Um, so, I'm not sure where the warrior imagery comes from. I've got an idea, but obviously David's had a lot of, had a lot of time in the presence of, of warriors. Um, before we go there, though, I think the, the picture of selecting five smooth stones from a brook, it um, resonates quite strongly with the idea of having a handful of arrows and going out to face your enemies. Um, so that feels very similar to the confrontation with Goliath. But um, I think if we, if we look at... Um, 2 Samuel 23, which is uh, the start of Samuel's appendix, where a lot of the stories that didn't really sort of fit in with the, the narrative of David and Saul have been put, but are really great stories. Um, so it, it, talks about the, it talks about the mighty man of David. And I think that's really what David wanted for, for, Sa- for Solomon, to have those men around him. Um, so all of these guys that are listed in, the, in those verses, they came to David before he inherited the throne. And they came with their distresses and their debts. They came bitter of soul. And uh, it says that you know, they were formed, basically, in the cave of Adullam. Um, they were seeing the faith of David on a daily basis. They were seeing his favor. They were seeing just how he praised. They were seeing his songwriting. And... Um, think Solomon would say that iron was sharpening iron and they go through exile and trial with David and eventually become his adopted family and a, a posse um, so he can lean on he can rely on them and you hear about the same men that he then goes on to count on whenever he's handing the kingdom over to Solomon uh, so you hear of Ishbel who took on 800 men in one battle and you hear of Eleazar 
and a hero Shammah, and they both stood their ground against the Philistines alone in fields whenever the rest of the, the, rest of the um, soldiers had deserted. And uh, basically, you're meant to see that they do the things that David does. Um, you know, they kill giants and they deliver cities. Um, and his own family are there as well. Not his brothers, actually, but his nephews there. He saves his life from a Philistine giant once. And then you get to this fella. You get to hear about Beniah. Um, so Beniah goes down. Well, he does all this to start. He, he takes an Egyptian's sword out of his hand or spear out of his hand and kills him when he's unarmed. And he goes down into a pit on a snowy day and kills a lion. So you're meant to tell that, like, like Samson, he's mighty. And, um, but yet, he's been tamed. He's, got a, he's been brought under David's hand. And he's controllable and biddable. He, he, does, he does the bidding of his master, you know, really. Even though they're, it's not really that relationship exactly, but... But I wanted to see something. Uh, wanted you to see something. Um, so Benaiah means Yahweh builds. So I actually think he's being name checked in the first verse here. Whenever David says, "Unless the Lord builds, um, unless Benaiah," and it's interesting that he is the right hand man of Solomon as he starts his reign, and really, you know, instrumental in in giving the kingdom to to Solomon. So David wants a dependable sons. Um, and the, the metaphor of the arrows then, um, like arrows, they act predictably. You can't hit two targets with the same arrow, typically, unless you're Hawkeye and you've got some sort of special, sort of multifaceted blade arrow, which might take down several vampires at one go. But... Um, <laughs> They can only hit one arrow at a time, so there's no divided hearts. There's no double-minded men in David's elite. Okay? And you think back to how Uriah the Hittite behaved. He wasn't going home when he was on mission. He, he basically refused, and eventually David had to actually kill him to get his own way. Um, but that was a level of devotion and love that, that there was in that, in that group. And there's, no, um, there's, there's loads of other men that David had on his side. He had Joab, you think of Joab, and um, in his last words, just above where it lists the, the mighty men there in, in 1 Samuel 23, David talks about the thorns, men being like thorns because they can't be taken by the hand. And that's why Joab is enlisted. He's running off doing his own missions, doing, getting revenge, getting just being a thorn in David's side. And David says... When I'm for peace, they're for war, you know. Um, so they're, they're not biddable. They're not, they're not part of the picture for Solomon either. And Job gets, um, gets his comeuppance, gets, um, gets, his, gets uh, what, he, what he sowed. Um, so the mighty men are of the same spirit with David. So even whenever David makes a wish and his warriors overhear that, and he says, um, oh, that someone would give me water from the well of Bethlehem by the gate. Um, the three mighty men break through on his behalf against the Philistines. 
and they draw water out of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And they take it and they bring it to David, but he won't drink of it, but he pours it out to the Lord. And he says, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Should I drink the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? So it won't be any surprise to hear in Hebrews 13, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. So there's a model there of, of blood being poured out and not, not loving your life unto death. And massive echo of that in the life of Paul when he says his life's going to be poured out as a drink offering to the Lord. Okay, and I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. You know, Revelation 12, we conquer. You know, we, we are conquering in Jesus because we conquer him, the accuser of our brothers, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives unto death. So I think there's something there resonating um, that uh, we have to be single-minded and in pursuit after Christ. Um, Unfortunately, we trace the story of Solomon down through Kings and Chronicles and we get disappointment. Um, the same man that goes on and says he's placed eternity in the heart of man. Sorry. And on really beautiful writing in Ecclesiastes, he moves on to build his own house. Other things start to occupy his time. So Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter and he leans into Pharaoh for security and Pharaoh fights his battles. He marries other women somehow 700 women um, and he brings in their gods the Ammonites and the Moabites he still goes to church three times a year but he's building Asherahs and heathen temples along with it and uh, if you want to look f- closer at that subject I'd recommend you a sermon by Carter Conlon called The Wisest Man Who Ever Lived just recounting the, the tragedy of Solomon's life uh, but the wisest man on earth but once he stops building with God, the cracks start to show. So you get Hadad coming out in opposition to him and Jeroboam comes in as his mighty man. But he's poorly chosen and he turns against him and uh, ends up inheriting the, the ten kingdoms. And Rehoboam, his son with the Namanite, he displays very little wisdom and loses ten out of twelve tribes almost immediately after he goes to the throne. And uh, it turns out that all these years, uh, the tribes have had really, really big problems with how they're being reigned over. And the same wisdom that deals with a mother's complaint and says, bring me a sword and I'll cut this child in half and that'll solve it, um, uh, to reveal the hearts of, the, of the, those present. That same wisdom is lost. And a generation later, the kingdom of Israel is cut up with a sword and cut in half. And um, in Rehoboam's reign, the first of many, many falls of the, of the house of Israel, you see that Pharaoh that Solomon trusted in so much comes up and takes all of the gold out of the temple. But let's consider Jesus. Jesus says the queen of the south will rise up in judgment because the generation that he's in 
didn't perceive that a greater one than Solomon was there. David's happy to be called Solomon's or David's greater son. Or Jesus is happy to be called David's greater son. Um, So when it comes to building and security, Jesus says about the Herod's temple and Herod's walls, he says that um, there won't be a stone left in another. They'll still be standing. And he's no time for the rich man who uh, wants to tear down his uh, barns and build bigger ones. He says that time is short. Um, There's only one thing we have to build on, and that's um, the stone that the builders rejected. That's become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And Paul says it's differently. He says there's basically no other foundation, full stop, that anyone can build on. When it comes to anxious toil, we take you to Matthew 6, and uh, he announces the Father's love and the simplicity of life. And um, name checks Solomon there and says, uh, Which of you being anxious can add a single hour to your life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. When it comes to children, David's, David's, um, David's fourth proverb, um, Solomon sa- or Jesus says, Come as little children, otherwise there's no place for you. And in Roman 8, Romans 8, All that are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adaptation as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And if we are God's children, and we walk in the Spirit, um, we shouldn't be at all surprised when we grow up to be like him. Um, So 2 Corinthians um, 7, Having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. But what are we building for? Um, Ephesians 4, it says, He has ascended and gives gifts to men. And it's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of his building, for the work of his service, to the building up, rather, of the body of Christ. Until we attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we become like him. And as a result, uh, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We go back to the interaction at the gate. I think one of the interesting things is a similarity to the book of Proverbs, where you get this sense that um, God is presenting the people of God to the enemy and saying, Behold my servant. Um, And if we take that metaphor and set it down in our own lives, basically there would be no real evidence that... um, that our enemies are in the world are seeing anything except us. We are the ones that are being presented in the quiver. Um, you know, and um, 
the intimidation has to come from our lives, has to come from how we live, how sharp we are. If you take an arrow, it's no strength in itself. It's not a tomahawk missile, it has a, has a massive uh, thrust. The thrust comes from, comes from the Lord. The hardness comes from time spent in, uh, in the presence of the Lord. David, um, well, Ezekiel says, uh, you know, set his, set his face like flint. And, um, you know, reading a bit about arrows and sort of, you sort of see the, the process of making an arrow. They would seek to have one bit of wood at the back and one bit of wood at the front. And the front wood would be hard, but the backward would, back wood would be soft to absorb the energy from, from the string and the hard wood at the front would bury deep into the target. Um, but yet, if you, if you want to break an arrow, you can. Just put it over your knee and it'll snap. There's no strength in itself. It's, um, strength comes from, its, from where it's going and who's firing it. Um, so in conclusion, um, read out a bit of Philippians. Um, just as we're thinking about being children of God, being sons of God in the midst of a wicked generation. He says, uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you can prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God without reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. So I want you to notice that. You know, the, that's where it comes down to. Uh, the church that, um, that Paul left at Philippians, at the Philippi rather, was um, he considered them sons. So... And just think about um, what it means to be a son of God. Um, it means you're peacemakers. Blessed be the peacemakers. You know. Um, so just want to finish there then. Dear Lord, just um, give you thanks for your word. And just pray bless it to the hearers in your name.